Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Good morning. And uh, so fabulous to be with you, Michelle and Dan. And so fabulous to be with uh, all of you. Uh, our beloved friend Elias is uh, is on vacation this weekend. Um, he's going to Buenos Aires uh, tomorrow to see his beloved mother. And we should be expecting Elisa soon. So And it's his birthday today. And it's his birthday. And Elisa is here. So we are going to uh, wish uh, Elias a, a happy birthday. And we are going to thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Page 63. Borach ata adnoi. So Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and so excited for this class. Um, as we all know, uh, the big event to think about and to process this week on its own and then to see uh, what fruitful comparisons there are with the Jewish tradition is the inauguration. And it feels like Amanda uh, Gorman stole the show. Uh, it feels like uh, the youngest inaugural poet of our country, uh, just uh, received rave reviews. Uh, all the, you know, there were a lot of aspects of the day that were wonderful that were reported on, but Amanda Gorman's reading of The Hill That We Climb just seemed to sparkle and shine. And I want to talk about that for a moment because she had actually a pretty tough assignment, not only being, you know, 23, 24 years old and standing before the entire nation. That's already very scary. Uh, you know, I'm 59 and I give a sermon to an empty sanctuary and it, it freaks me out every Saturday and I've been doing it for 24 years. But here she is speaking to literally the nation and literally to the world. So just in and of itself, oh my God, Amanda Gorman, how did you do that? You're 23 years old, 24 years old. But beyond that, her, her job was really hard because the, the obvious context that exactly where she spoke, like mamish, the ground that she spoke on, was the ground of the insurrection, right? And here she is, a black woman. Here she is, descended of slaves. And here she was, and, and where she was, people with Confederate flags were there. People with Confederate flags broke into the Capitol and put their Confederate flags in. How many people died so there would never be a Confederate flag there, and Confederate flags were there, and a noose was there. So she had to confront that reality which was two weeks and one day ago. And yet, she has to be optimistic because there is no market for a pessimistic poet. So how do you acknowledge that and be optimistic? And in talking to Lisa, Dan, Michelle about it all week, um, we all kind of realized that it's always uh, karma, cosmic, how this happens, but our Torah reading mirrors and maps life because what also happens, you know, the Israelites get out of Egypt this week. Slavery is over this week. And then there's kind of an insurrection. Uh, the Egyptians want to re-enslave them. And they come after them. And it's a very close call. And they're saved. So here's our move today. 
it's it's two things. One is we want to look at, at Amanda Gorman's uh, her poem and her presence and her presentation. What was it about the Amanda Gorman moment that was so dramatically successful? And in this divided land of ours, drew pretty much universal rave reviews. I didn't hear anybody who said I didn't like Amanda Gorman. You know, maybe I'm not reading the full panoply of views, but everything that I read um, said, oh my God, Amanda Gorman. What was it about her presentation and her presence and her, and her poetry that drew rave reviews? And I want to juxtapose that after we're done with that with the Shira, uh, next week is Shabbat Shira. And I, and I want to just, for you who are following this at home, I want to frame it in the following way. This is a Sidur, Sidur Sim Shalom, our daily prayer book. And if you ask yourself what passages from the Torah, from the five books of Moses, are at such a level that we recite them as prayer every day. Most of us would say, oh, the Shema, the three paragraphs of the Shema. But also the following. Um, it's kind of an insurrection inauguration moment. This is page 27 of our daily, of, of our daily Sidor prayer book. Thus Adonai saved the people Israel from the Egyptians on that day. Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore of the sea. When the people Israel witnessed the great power that Adonai wielded against the Egyptians, the people feared Adonai, but they had trust in Adonai and in his servant Moses. So the Israelites are just saved, like the insurrection just fails. They just are saved. And then, then the song of the sea, the Shirah. So you have two cases, insurrection, inauguration, like, oh my God, it could have been so bad, and we're saved. And in the Shira, oh my God, it could have been so bad and we're saved. And I want to see what happens when we compare these two poems. So that's our, that's our, our root wrap for today. So I'm going to start with my colleagues just at a general level. Why did Amanda Gorman rock it? I, I would just start off by saying that, what, she's 22 or 23. Yeah. But her presentation was mature. And her presentation was... Um, there was nothing shy about it. She took, you know, she she took the stage right away, and she took to the stage right away. Um, you know, so that was part, that was like initially, you know, the, the, when she started to speak, and she her gesticulations were just so um, not over dramatic, but just you know, but just clearly in the presence of the moment, and in the presence of the presentation, and in the presence of of the um, of the power of the poetry. So that, that, I think, you know, took us all by storm right away. Just the charisma. Just the, just the charisma. The presence, the, fact, yeah. the charisma. The presence, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I would add that one of the interesting lines she says in her poem is that she finds herself reciting for one. And the image, you know, normally when you speak about poetry, you think about reading poetry. You think about speaking poetry, and her frame is reciting before someone, which harkens back to um, a more transcendent kind of a, a role. And if you read reports about how she wrote this and how it came to her, um, it's almost as if you get the sense that she's a vessel for these words coming out. And there are some beautiful reports of how she struggled herself as Moses struggled, as Maya Angelou struggled with uh, a speech impediment as Biden struggles himself, um, and that 
the, the sense of these words being her raft through the world and being able to articulate in a way that is in some ways because of the strength that she showed overcoming these challenges, but also in some sense miraculous. I mean, there, there's a sense of awe in, in which she understands that she now has the power of speech. And, and I found that quite profound, the word reciting in here. Mm. And, and that harkens, by the way, to the, to the Shirak. Right. right. There's so many rabbinic commentators who ask, like, wait a minute, how is Az Yashir Moshe all except? But Uvene Yisrael at the same time, all these words, all these same things, how did that happen? And I, I get a similar sense of 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 sort of mystical, divine uh, putting forward of beautiful words that just spark into the world mm. at the right time. Thank you. Elisa, just a, a comment on how did she rock it? Why did she rock it? Why did everybody think she stole the show? And then we'll go deeper into her words. I deeply agree with both of my colleagues. Um, and I think I would, I would add that one of the things that came for me, and this in some ways echoes both what Michelle and Dan shared, is that she walked to the podium with the beacon of her shining bright. And it, it felt like she wasn't trying to be political, she wasn't trying to be something that she wasn't, she wasn't trying to mediate, she was just honestly sharing, and that's such a different move from what we think of as like politics, or like, like so many of us are trying to think about how we can fit into the mold of what we're supposed to be, or how we can be somebody that other people will like, and she just felt like she was, as you said, just breathing out, sharing without, um, without feeling like it had to be a, a poem, it was, it was a sharing, and that was, that was just so beautiful. Okay, so I want to bring a rabbinic exegetical lens on her poetry, because I think her poetry deserves it. And I want to start with the very title, which is so interesting. And I want to put a rabbinic magnifying glass on each of the four words. It's the hill we climb. The, which suggests that there's one, not multiple. Hill, not a mountain. It's not a mountain, it's a hill. A hill is a little bit less formidable than a mountain. The means one. So one not-so-formidable mountain, we, we, climb that verb. So uh, what, what, how does the title convey the content of her poem? I, for me, there are two answers to that. In the, in the one sense, there is a, a more accessible MLK moment here, um, of course, hill, mountaintop, you've got that, that resonance right. there. And, you know, MLK was trying to convince us all that, that the mountaintop is something that we can get to and that um, famously, mm. you know, every hill and molehill will ultimately reach us to that mountaintop. Um, and so I, this is like an interstitial reference to MLK. But which she does in the end as well. The mountain, this is a hill, this more is accessible. A, right. Right. I mean, I, that's good. I like that. <laughs> I okay. like that. Okay. And, and then the, the second piece, maybe you'll like this less. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. Um, 
I read a really interesting article about Amanda Gorman herself. And in, in some ways, it was really dry. It was about her growing up and going to a special school that she went to where they had a mi mixed socioeconomic um, kind of a community. And in another sense, she was explaining you know, sort of how did she become who she is, somebody who loves poetry and is able to speak in this way. And one of the things that... Um, that she shares there, which I found really powerful, was a sense that she has always understood America as broken. And therefore, right, and, and by the way, this is something that people politically, today, this is a big political problem. There are plenty of people who believe that we need to teach our children that America is not broken. Um, and that and in a sense, actually, that this poem, at least as she frames it, emerges from her understanding as a black woman that America has never been what it could be or should be, but that that frame actually did not forge a, uh, a depressive kind of a take on America, but instead that she found great strength in that take because in the moment when she saw the the Capitol building being stormed, that was just for her like a, well, of course it is. Of course it is, because that's part of who we are too. And therefore she wasn't shaken by this in the same way that, you know, I certainly felt myself shaken by that moment. She was, she at least reports that she was able to kind of take it in right. as part of who we are, but not part of who we have to be. And therefore she could move, move quickly to mm. this moment. Okay, so she, just uh, to be fair and to double-click on what you just said, what she writes in, in, in her poem is that a nation that isn't broken, Correct. but simply unfinished. Right. So, in other words, I think one of the cultural currents that she was entering was uh, six, the 1619 Project or the 1776 Project, right? The 1619 Project says you cannot understand our country until you get slavery, uh, which, by the way, they're right. And, and I didn't even get that until I read Cast. But the, but the level to which uh, slavery was not a sad, dark chapter, but like the fundamental basis on which our country was built, I, I never got that until I read Cast. And the 1619 Project makes that clear. And the counter is, of course, the 1776 Project, which is don't even talk about slavery, just talk about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and don't talk about the slaves that he owned. Or that, or this, you know, or the women that he had relations with that were his slaves. Just talk about his words. And what she, what she says, is it's a nation that isn't broken but simply unfinished. And do you think that formulation, isn't broken, does justice to the insurrection? So I, I actually found it. That, that's why I found this article so fascinating, because I've always assumed that being steeped in a sense of an an, a way of interrogating your history um, that is critical would yield people who are critical and cynical and um, who don't believe in our uh, in the values that we share, right? Mm. There, there is that voice that's really worried about that. You have to tell the tales of glory. And if we don't tell the tales of glory as tales of glory, we somehow make their power less. And, and in at least in her own reflection, you see that it's actually because she understood that this world, it, that, that this country has always contained these problematic nature, this problematic nature, that 
she could say it's unfinished, mm. right? That she could, she could understand, okay, all right, this is part of who we are. And by the way, meet this moment. Because we have to confront this. Mm. We, we, we do have to confront this problem in our nation, but we also can't be <laughs> stopped by it. Mm. And, and she somehow had a superpower because she had grown up in that water of understanding our world from a critical perspective that enabled her then to find the crack in that and continue to build towards wholeness mm. and, and hope. I found it beautiful. Um, let's talk about, I'd love to shine the light on the word climb. Because I, and I think this builds on your your sense of, of of your interpretation of her, which is when you climb, you're never really at rest. When you're climbing, if if you think about a hike, you're climbing, you're hiking, you're climbing, you're not at a plateau. Like if you're climbing, it's hard to have lunch. If you're climbing and you're on an ascent, it's hard to have lunch. Like you can stop, you can put your bag down, you can take a sip of water. You can breathe, you can blow your nose, you can make, maybe have a granola bar, but you can't really sit and have lunch. You can't like chill and take a, a little nap. If you're climbing, you're breathing heavy. If you're climbing, you're breathing hard. And if you're climbing, you know that you haven't reached your destination. Um, and it feels like one of the resonances of climb to me is that we never plateau, we never breathe, we never get there. It's kind of... Moses, it's kind of the children of Israel. We never actually cross the River Jordan and enter the Promised Land. We're climbing, whether it's a hill or a mountain, but that means we're always breathing hard, and we're always, we're always, we always got to get somewhere higher. Uh, what, what else? What other resonances did you guys pick up from the title and from and from the poem? Well, I, yeah, we just say to pick up on what you just said. You know, it's a uh, the word hill makes it really interesting because. Climbing a mountain, if someone says, let's go climb a mountain, I mean, eh, you know, it's like, okay. Uh, but climbing a hill is very different because it means that it may be hard work, but we can get there. Mm. Whereas climbing a mountain may, may feel like, oh, I don't know that I can get to the top of this mountain. So maybe that, that's part of it also. And you're, you know, of course, you're right about actively, that it is active and that there isn't a, a that it, it isn't a moment of rest. But but on the other hand, it's uh, it is doable. It's reachable. It's an attainable goal, and it's we, you know, the the hill we climb. So we're doing it together, and doing it together means it's doable together, and maybe only together. Mm. I'm not really sure if it's only or not, but we can do it together. It's interesting for me because we're both from Colorado, and they're the Colorado foothills, and they are not. Small, like they, we <laughs> there's a range of hills. You like there's like the bunny hill you go skiing on. That's small, but still not that small. The Colorado foothills, like that's not. It's not. A, so it's it's an interesting frame because within a hill you have all different ranges of challenge. And I think Wes, I was listening to you talk about you know not being able to rest at the same time when you're climbing. Um, one of the things I find so interesting is when you go on a hike, your your legs are inclined at a different angle than they normally are, which means you're engaging different muscles than you often engage. And I find that often after I've finished, I feel my like places in my muscles that I don't normally feel. And it's like, I didn't notice it when I was climbing, but that muscle development happens as a part of the process. And I think part of it is like, one of the things I felt really resonant within this poem is 
we're all doing this work, whether we acknowledge it or not. Like there's a way in which we're all, no, however you are on this project, and whether you're, you're an adherent of the 1776 project or the 1619 project, we're all doing this work and we're all building these muscles somehow together. Um, and it's sometimes only after you've finished the climb that you can figure out where you've built those muscles. I wanted to, before we pivot to the Shira, I, I am just dying to ask you guys one thing, because this just struck me, and tell me if it struck you this way. This is, she writes, this is in the third paragraph from the bottom of the page. For while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. And that just felt like such a clear reference to, to Hamilton and Lin-Manuel Miranda, just such an interstitial, uh, uh, you know, illusion, uh, right? This is like when parts of the Bible are playing with each other and, and gesturing towards each other. Um, where, where he has George Washington singing, history has its eyes on you. And here she says, history has its eyes on us. So what's the resonance of the meaning of the gesture towards Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton? And what's the resonance of the change from history has its eyes on you to history has its eyes on us? So I, I loved, you know, she tweeted Lin-Manuel Miranda and said, you know, hey, shout out, <laughs> you know, did you catch the references? <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a whole cultural phenomenon called uh, sampling, right, in which you're able to, to pull on the authority of a source before you and really bring in its power. And, of course, any poet who refers to poetry of the past, or in this case, music of the past, which is also poetry, um, actually has the ability of borrowing the power of that piece too because your mind ultimately goes to it. This is one of the things I love about the rabbis and the Talmud because they'll say one thing about Torah and you're like, the whole story clicks into place for uh, you. It's totally intertextual. 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 And so what, what I would say is then you could ask the question of, okay, so what was the cultural moment that was Hamilton, right? What was that about? for us and I, I you know we don't have enough time in this class to go <laughs> deeply into that question but for me I would say that one piece of that and it's only one piece is that um, the idea that we can actually reclaim a sense of of pride and of hope at the same time without having to accept the uh putting our history on a pedestal, mm. meaning we can interrogate our history, we can understand our history as, as it was unvarnished, and, and yet we can still walk out <laughs> singing in glory that history has its eyes on, I mean, you're meant to take away from Hamilton that history has its eyes on us, not just them, us. And, and she's walking out of the room singing that loud. Mm. Okay, let us, I want to pivot for a second now to, uh, to the Shira, Azya Shir Moshe. And again, the context is, you know, it's the Israelites have just been through a terrifying moment when they're, they're ex-slaves, they have no history of fighting back, the Egyptian army and all of its ferocity is about to get them, there's nowhere to go other than they drown in the sea, and God does this miracle. And then the Israelites saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore of the sea. And only then, after the ten plagues and after this terrifying coda, are they free and then they sing. So here's my question to you guys. What is it about 
there's a lot of fabulous passages in the Torah. A lot of fabulous passages in the Torah. Um, why is it that our liturgy, our prayer book, other than the Shema, really only seeks, sees fit to put this, you know, near-miss moment? They saw the Israelites dead on the, the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Az Yashir. That's what we, that's what we summon every day, 365 days a year. What is it about that moment? What is it about the message? What's the message of the Shira that is just so important? We have to say it every day. That's interesting for me. When I was building my davening practice, I hated this Shira. And I just, like, I still... Say more. That's full, just... full disclosure... When I daven biachid, I skip it every single day. I know I'm a ter- I'm ter- I I recognize <laughs> this is like, I just I just want to come clean and share that I have like this. <laughs> it's a challenging lovely. But like, so I talked with my Rebbe about it, and because um, at the time I was like, you know, I want to build this davening practice, and I I recognize, you know, it's like it's not just mentioned once or twice. It's like throughout the liturgy, like you can't really get away from it. And even if you skip the actual shira, there's still all the references to the dead babies that are happening in Egypt, like before you can even get to your Amidah, and you can't like, I don't skip two things, I do mention that part, but. <laughs> the <laughs> babies over the poetry? I do, I choose. Uh. <laughs> People are weird, uh, that's just where we are. But um, my Revi talked about needing to be at a high enough spiritual level to to be in this song and that there's like there are days and and there are days when you can say it and there are days when you don't say it and um i think for me it's a really interesting moment we we talked a little bit this week about like when when does the song come um because i don't buy like all the questions around like it's the miracle and they all just magically sing it together i just think that's there's like no way like songs that's not how communal singing works if that was how that worked we could sing so many different melodies all together we would just automatically get them in our sanctuary we could just like you know we could pick new melodies every week that's just that's not how Ta- music on. works can i ask a question just i want to know something what is it I, I didn't get it yet what is it about the shira that doesn't work for you that 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 in that makes you want to skip it in other words, you, you talked about you, you do skip it and you have to talk to your Rebbe about it, but what's your problem with the Shira? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think that within the Shira, it's like a very interesting blend of the most gorgeous language you'll ever encounter and the most horrible imagery. And it's all blended together. And... Um, it doesn't feel like prayer to me. If that, like, and I, I don't even know quite how to describe it, but all of the other morning liturgy, my, my morning practice is I, I go through and I sing it to myself, and that just doesn't, doesn't feel like a song to me. I, mm. I sing so, all the way up until it and then all the way after it, but not that song. That's can, so can I, can I, fascinating. Can, can, I just want to jump in a little bit. So, um, you know, uh, this is, uh, the Shira is a moment about... God's power and about people coming together, but it is also about violence and destruction. And I could see how that could be, you know, complex for people trying to find a prayer moment. I, I, you know, I, can, I can certainly get that. And it's interesting, when, when you first proposed this particular poem, I was thinking maybe um, maybe uh, Ha'azinu may have been a, another poem we could have chosen because that's a little less, you know, violence about God's power. Yeah. Uh, that's, but, but, and, but, um, but Ha'azinu gets no press in the right, Jewish tradition. That. You exactly. read it yeah. once it a year it and doesn't, uh, Ha'azinu. Yes, yeah, but this yeah. is every day. This is, this is every day. And the, the, this the, is every day. Yeah, the, and the, the, so the question is, um, 
I think I think it poses the question that the that, that the framers of the Sidor uh, had, which is, um, does redemption need does redemption need some kind of um, powerful, almost violent um, a moment or not? And I think that that uh, that uh, the poem um, that we just read earlier um, is saying that 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 it's exactly the opposite. And exactly the opposite. Like, for instance, in in the in the first paragraph, she said, uh, "We've learned that quiet isn't always peace." Mm. But the idea that 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 quiet and peace and reflection um, is a way towards redemption, that perhaps violent actions are not. So this is a con a, contra a, a contrast between some of the, maybe the ways that each of the poems, you know, gives us gives us a look into who we are as humans and our relationship with with God and with and with um and with our people and the Jewish people and with other people and 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 how we come together and how we find that hill to climb. Mm. Uh, look, our our tradition very much gets the problematic nature of this prayer. In fact, we have the midrash that speaks about the you know, the angels starting to join the Israelites in this beautiful song and that God's like <laughs> No, <laughs> you know, stop. Go back to timeout. Right? You're exactly. You're in a timeout, right? The Egyptians are also my people, and they're drowning, and and you don't get to sing about that. The Israelites get to sing about that because they've just experienced this moment, and it's natural and it's normal for a human being to rejoice in the destruction of another when it becomes their redemption. It's not okay, in general. And in fact, I mean, when we look back on that moment in history, we actually mark that at our Pesach seders. You know, I, are you very much into the dipping? The Love the <laughs> dipping. <laughs> right. The question is like, which finger? And also, do you keep it on a plate that you're going to eat from? So you're going to magnify that. <laughs> we, can, we can go deep on that. Okay. So we'll get to Pesach soon. But, <laughs> but, uh, but it was fascinating to me to hear that you don't uh, that you don't even say this song because to me it's actually one of the core places in our liturgy where we first learn about the space and the place of women in our tradition and like the power that we don't sing we can't sing unless all of us are singing and and that there is the sense that you get wrapped up in a redemptive moment that is not complete until everyone gets there and to me, that's just an incredible power about this piece. And then uh, from the other perspective, though, I'll say I don't know that I got this either um, until sort of a, a middle-of-the-night hospital moment where I felt like, you know, in this redemptive space, having felt a sense of having been redeemed to be able to truly own these words and the power of this poetry and what it really meant. And so... Perhaps we say this prayer every day because that redemption isn't just about the destruction of right. Pharaoh's army, but it's about all the forces that align against us and the ways in which we come through. Yeah, I want to I, I want to um, pause and, and deepen uh, that the point that you just made, Michelle. Um, I was listening to and uh, in the following way. I was listening to Evan Osnos, who wrote a biography of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, interviewed on the New Yorker Hour, and the NPR or New Yorker reporter asked him, "What, what was the salient and surprising takeaway of Joe Biden's inauguration?" And Evan Osna said it was the theme of fragility, that uh, democracy is precious, but it's fragile; it could be taken away from us. 
that life itself is precious, but it's fragile. It could be taken away from us. And of course, everybody knows about his biography, about the loved ones, most recently Bo, precious but fragile, taken away from us. Democracy, precious, fragile, taken away from us. And that, that note of fragility was, was the driving theme of his words. Um, and I think that to me, as I read the Shira, um, it's fragility. That is to say that life itself is, I mean, in other words, you don't say the Shira. I, I always remember this article about Bruce Springsteen, that he was most prolific and fecund and rich when he was, you know, a poor boy in New Jersey, writing about the gritty streets. And then he had a period where he moved to Beverly Hills, and his songs just didn't have that resonance. It's hard to sing gritty Bruce Springsteen when you're in a gated community in Beverly Hills. Um, and in a, in a similar way, it feels like the energy of the Shira comes from the fragility. The energy of the Shira comes from the fact that, oh my God, we almost, you know, it could have been so different. Like the sense of sharp danger and sharp relief that we kind of just made it. Oh my God, oh my God. You can't do that when you're in Beverly Hills behind a gated community and everything is safe. And so I think that gratitude and fragility are very interwoven. And to me, that, that feels like the message of the Shira. Uh, we are so vulnerable. We are so fragile. Never forget our democracy can be taken away. Never forget our life can be taken away. Never forget our health can be taken away. Never forget our money can be taken away. Never forget that what we love most can be taken away. That's the theme of the Shira. And, and if you live like that, then you live vigilant and you live grateful. Um, I think there's also something for me that, and this is a, a place of tension between organized religious practice and spontaneous davening, right? Which is that sometimes the things that we practice lose their emotional um, vibrancy. Like, you can have a, an amazing, unreal, joyful, or tragic experience, but when you repeat it over and over again, those emotions dull. And so there's a really interesting place in our tradition mm. that says, I'm going to take this pivotal moment with so much emotion and so much intensity and so much drama and I'm going to turn it into a daily recitation. Boilerplate. Yeah. And that it neuters it in some ways. And the question, because for me, like, how do we as practitioners and inheritors of a tradition that's all about continuity, that's all about repetition, that's all about building practice, and right, there's, I, I deeply believe, I daven every day, I deeply believe in repetition, I deeply believe there's, there's power to doing the same thing and feeling it and bringing it into the moment, but then how do we also bring in that spontaneity and that honest emotional practice and not just lose ourselves in the words? Right, the, uh, the Kevin Kavanaugh right. issue, right? Yeah. But um, you know, I was also thinking like, in terms of this poem, um, so the other thing is that, uh, that um, she does, Amanda does make a, uh, I think a reference in a certain way to Shirat Hayam, uh, and that's in the, uh, the fourth paragraph towards the end where she says, um, that this could be like, we could be thinking about how the Israelite people may have felt, how we felt. Even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. So I think, you know, the and this is the moment of Az Yashir Moshe that we all sang together. Right. And that, that, um, uh, that, that, not knowing division, that we when we come together, that that will bring the power right. 
um, but that that also that you know the 400 years of slavery that we hurt, but yet we still hoped. It's right. interesting, so, Dan, because you're pulling out here the one line that sprang so true and then so false to me at the same time. There's just if I, I have only one criticism of this poem. It, it is an extraordinary poem, and and it's deep. And it, ha it displays so much understanding about the human condition and about the fragility of our democracy. And it, it speaks so prophetically to our moment. But it's how so could she possibly healthily. say we will never again start right. division? <laughs> right. like, we literally have division right now. You know, as she's standing so there, as she's standing there, we have, you know, congressmen who say, I'm, I'm not going to go you know i'm not going right. to i'm not going to be part cuz i'm scared of other congressmen you have people who who are who are in that moment sort of waiting so to what, yeah okay so, so she surely no, but she, <laughs> right? but just, she literally got. in that moment so when she writes we will never again sow division right just when she knows the impeachment trial is coming etc 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 uh, what could she possibly have meant by that? So I'm struggling to I'm struggling <laughs> with that, right? Because it, it is such a polished poem, and that is literally the one place it's that, a that rings. It's a covenant. Painful. It's a hope. But the rest of it. But so that's the thing. It's so out of line with the rest of it. The rest of it mm. is so helpful and real in its realism, right? It's helpful in not becoming overwrought about mm. what is what is possible even you know it, the the first part of the sentence that you read even as we grieved we grew it acknowledges that we hold both of these things at the same time and then suddenly out of i don't know she needed an editor <laughs> <laughs> so, well, no, i okay. think there's a place for i think there's a place for saying that <laughs> in this moment we're never going to sow division i i totally hear that in some ways, the impeachment feels feels like a, a moment of division. It may be that there's a way to see that as a moment of grappling with what has been not about sowing division, but about finding a shared ground moving forward. I I think, and I we we have this conversation all the time because I I like, uh, I like broad hyperbolic language that takes in the fullness of what could be and not the reality of what is. Like that's, I'm really drawn to that. So I actually like was like, yeah, I'm like, I was so with her and she was saying this, not because it in any way strikes me as, as being, uh, you know, purely factual or absolutely realistic, but because I like that, that really works for me. And I was like, yes, like we're never going to do that ever again. And there's a place for aspirational yeah. language. It just felt out of out of place here within the rest of her poem because she was not using that so. device throughout the rest of it. But back to the Shira. <laughs> never going to get with you. No, I, I have this, this really, this poem that Amanda Gorman writes, you know, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it as her final lines. I mean, it really speaks to the possibility of what each of us can can do to be part of this project that is our democracy. And so I would want to ask you, Aliza, the question, like, do you get something, if you look at the Shira, is there a shared project that emerges for you there, or does it just end with it's a singing on on that particular day for that particular time about a destruction of a particular people? No, I, so it's interesting. I I haven't. I think it's a gorgeous shira. I, I deeply love it, and um, when I do textual art, often I find myself drawing out the words from like particular places from the shira. Um, and in our home, we have different artwork from the shira. Um, I just don't. 
I don't I don't like it in that context, mm. right? Like it's not I'm not it's not off my plate, and and uh, there have been times in my life where it was a Shabbos practice only, and um, you know it's it's not typically our our main sanctuary Shabbos practice here, but like I'm not a, I'm not opposed to it. I just don't find it like it's not the song of my heart every morning. But I'm I'm so, so interested by the how how much you like the the language that is not necessarily real, but that's hyperbolic, that could get you to a place. And, um, and yet that the dulling of our prayer throughout time can also be seen as an insertion of a moment, a small moment within a day in which we're meant to try to touch or reach some hyperbolic moment in our past. So I wanted to... Um to, to end with with two related questions, which is, you know, what's the message of Amanda Gorman's poem to you and the message of the Shirat to you in this season of 2021? And do they uh, reinforce each other or are they in creative tension with each other? What do you, you have two poems that are written between the insurrection and the inauguration, between, oh my God, we're almost killed by the Egyptians and now we're not, we're here. Um, what's the message of each poem and do they reinforce each other or leave you with some creative contradiction? And what do you take away when you look at these two poems of salvation that are both hyper aware of our fragility? So I think there's an interesting contradiction, at least if we take our text, our text seriously, which is that one, we have Amanda Gorman which is a song of a young woman on her own. And she's not, she's not seeking consensus. She's not seeking, she's not trying to make everybody sing with her. She is sharing her individual song. And we have the song of the sea, which is um, everyone all together. It's, it's a collective collaborative project. Um, and I feel like as I'm hearing both of these songs today, I'm really feeling the task of each one of us to both sing our own individual song and figure out a way to all sing together to be to be an Amanda Gorman and also to be like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the world and it's gonna be like this magical uh, moment where all of us just burst into the same song and have the same shared vision and we're able to move forward together mm. Dan yeah I think I think actually she does um, she does really kind of sum it up and it is in the fifth paragraph um, which I think also connects again connects the two poems she's talking about scripture in that paragraph um, but she says, um, that is the promise to glade the hill we climb, if only we dare it, because being American is more than the pri a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. I think that's really, it's our message. It's, it's our message, you know. Um, our, as, as Jews, um, we have a history that, that we step into, mm. and, and our purpose is tikkun olam, uh, you know, to re repairing the world. So that tikkun olam, um, has uh, is par partly has to do with um, with the vision that we have of who we uh, of reality of what, it's the connection of what reality is and the vision of what reality can be and should be, mm. and I think that, that that really connects. You know, the the Shirat Hayam is about what reality is and the vision of 
uh, of moving forward after you know after the exodus after the crossing of the sea what's our vision mm -hmm. the vision is you know tikkun olam and then she says um, that we should that the scripture says we should sit under our own vine and fig tree and no one shall make us afraid that's the vision that we have as Jews and that's the vision that uh, that we have as Americans simultaneously Michelle. Mm -hmm. So I love that this has immediately become something that we study, <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't know if you guys can see, but I have a highlighter throughout all of this, and I'm pointing out which parts are intertextual, and, you know, I, and, I, and I believe that this will be studied for into our future. Um, and I, I love that particularly because, to me, it speaks not to the pieces that we've been talking about all morning about the ways in which they're similar or different, these poems, but because of the beginning, I will praise, I will sing to God, uh, for God and, and the root of the word ga'o is, is, is lifted up or exalted. And, um, and I think the power of a person or a people being able to flow with exalting is um, is just something we need to have more of mm. and and I'd, I'd love to see more of more of this kind of spirit in our world mm. thank you guys so I'll tell you what uh, the common denominator of both of these for me and it's just it's always where I live and it's especially where I live now is how tenuous life is how we're just barely hanging on. I always feel like everything's just barely hanging on, like very, very, very fragile. I mean, I think about our congregations, very, very fragile, very fragile. I mean, we haven't been in the same building for a year, right? We're riven by politics the way our nation is riven by politics. We're riven, we're not present, we're all on our own screens. We're, all, we're Instead of being under our own fig tree and none shall be afraid, we're all on our own couches with our own screens with the doors closed. Um, and barely, hang, the country's barely hanging on. You know, 400,000 dead, barely hanging on. The vaccine rollout, so hard. How do you do this? Barely hanging on. Israel is, you know, they're, they're doing well on the vaccinations, but it's a lockdown. Barely hanging on, right? And that, that fragility, that what we love most is so tenuous, right? And at the same time, hope that we can and the, we will get through this. Right, that we're not going to surrender to the fragility. We are going to transcend the fragility. Our congregation has these problems that we've not been in the same building, and we're riven like our beloved nation, but we're going to transcend this. Right? And so to, for me, the, uh, one line that I have just always loved is, that the Israelites go into the sea where they're wet and they can't breathe, but somehow on dry ground. And that notion that you could be submerged, immersed, vulnerable, overwhelmed, but you're in the middle of a sea, but you're bayabasha on dry ground, and you're going to be okay. But it's 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 a tight one. It's a close one. In the poem, it's a it's 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 close call. In the shira, it's a very close call. In our country, it's a very close call. In life, it's a very close call. But the whole religious project is that in the end we will sing a song of gratitude. Amen. Shabbat shalom. <laughs> Shabbat shalom. Can't wait for us to sing again. Yom Huledet Sameach, Elias. Happy birthday, Elias. Safe travels to Argentina. <laughs> <laughs>